The Athletic. Russo brought it down beautifully, and here's the chance driven into the net. And a two for England. And here's Sam Kerr. She's going to need some support. Kerr running at bright. Kerr with the shot. Oh, I say that's incredible. But England here. England oh, it's in. Australia have made a hash of it. Lauren Hemp has put England back in front. And Russo puts England into the World Cup final. I'm Michelle Owen and this is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast World Cup edition. The second semi-final of this Women's World Cup has been played and history has been made. England have made their first ever final after their victory at Stadium Australia in Sydney, Wangal, and it will be the Lionesses who take on Spain to add a new name to the World Cup trophy. With me today are the Athletic Charlotte Harper and Mark Kerry. Hello both. Hi Michelle. Hello. And joining us from the scene itself, Stadium Australia, it's Michael Cox. Hey, Michael. Hi, Michelle. We'll also be hearing from Chloe Morgan later in the show. First up, well, where else would we begin? Wow, so we are recording moments after the final whistle has gone. Um, Michael, you are there. Tell us about the noise. What was it like? Was it intimidating for the players? Because it seemed to be pretty deafening on the TV. Yeah, it was loud. I mean, probably was intimidating for the England players, but I think probably nerve-wracking for the Australia players as well. It was quite a noise and it's been, I mean, for a tournament that didn't really seem to have much traction when I arrived a month ago, it really has taken off. I mean, around the city today, just yellow shirts everywhere. It was so busy about three hours before kickoff. And yeah, the, the roar before the anthem in particular. And of course, when that Sam Kerr goal went in, it was incredible, incredible to be a part of. And I think England did really well, actually, to not be affected by that, particularly those moments after the uh, the first goal. Because, yeah, that was a that was a proper home support. And, uh, you know, they've driven Australia on throughout the tournament. So you mentioned in the last pod how Australia did well protecting their centre-backs, uh, Steph Catley and Claire Hunt. How do you think England did? How do you think they played out with getting to them so well? Yeah, I remember saying yesterday, I think, when we did a preview, that England just needed to attack them quite quickly and I think that's what they did okay the second goal is uh, a mistake really from the fullback Carpenter rather than the centre-backs but those kind of balls I think were always going to trouble them balls into the channels and then the third goal okay it's on the breakaway it's when Australia have substituted one of their centre-backs but just that speed on the outside of them I don't think Australia look comfortable when when dealing with that and you know there's lots of things you get from this England front too but I think that speed and the, the awareness in the channels, maybe Russo isn't necessarily the player you would say is lightning quick, but she's really good in that channel. And we've seen pretty identical finishes from her in the quarterfinal and the semi-final. And Lauren Hemp has been a real revelation up front. I must say, I thought she was relatively quiet throughout the Euros run last year, considering the, the talent we know she has. But she's just been fantastic as a centre forward, not just running in behind, but coming short as well. She's really showed great intelligence and variety to her game and they're working really well as a front too. Um, Mary Fowler was playing deeper due to Sam Kerr starting. How do you think that affected the balance of the Australian team and Fowler's game in particular? I actually thought she did pretty well. I'd be interested to, to uh, hear what Charlotte and Mark thought of her performance. 
I think it's been quite difficult for players in that position in this tournament to get the ball between the lines because teams are just so well organised and so compact. But I thought she did pretty well actually at getting on the ball and, and played some decent balls in behind for Sam Kerr. Didn't always come off, but yeah, I was really impressed by her tonight. I think she dropped deep, received the ball to feet, got herself involved, and uh, yeah, overall I think the, the front two worked pretty well. I mean, Sam Kerr had two really good chances after her goal, didn't she? At two one down and. You know, it, it does often seem to be the way with Kerr. She'll miss a couple of easy chances and then score a really hard chance. And that was an absolute classic example tonight. Yeah, that can be defined a worldie for sure. And like you said, it felt like the header and then the one where she went over were perhaps the easier chances. Um, Mark, Charlotte, what did you think about Fowler playing deeper, as Michael mentioned there? I mean, yeah, I think it was kind of out of necessity, wasn't it? When you got some with the, the strength of Kerr, we don't know whether she was 100% fit, but with the goal she scored, you sort of don't need to, to worry about that, that it was always going to be Fowler to, to make way for Kerr because of the threat that she had. And to be honest, England had a warning sign in the, the early stages, didn't they? It was just offside, but Kerr sort of showed her strength in running in behind in the early stages. She had a couple of other occasions where she almost got on the end of stuff as well. So... Um, I think, yeah, it, it did work well. It was just, as Michael said, that, that chance to nearly make it 2-2, then within a matter of seconds, minutes, it was then 3-1. So it, was, it just shows how the game can swing so, so easily. The teasing ball from Mary Fowler into Sam Kerr in the, in the latter stages of the game, she can pick Sam Kerr out and Sam Kerr finds those positions in between the two centre-backs really well. But it's credit to England for dealing with Mary Fowler so clinically the organization it sounds really boring but England just did the basics brilliantly just didn't concede unnecessary errors they were perfectionism in their professionalism their organization their discipline no player rarely put a foot wrong and that basically dealing with Mary Fowler was just a a small part of that whole England performance perfectionism in their professionalism just like this podcast Mm -hmm. That's the line to take from this tournament for sure. Um, Michael, what was it like then when Elatoon's goal went in? Did it dampen the atmosphere? Did it help England's cause in terms of playing the crowd down a little bit? Yeah, maybe. It was a funny goal because I thought England actually had quite a good attacking plan to get Elatoon in behind and Georgia Stanway as well who had that earlier chance. But the goal kind of came out of nothing. But to be fair, I thought Australia didn't really seem to panic after that. I think stuck to the plan and I thought had a good spell of pressure at the start of the second half as well. So yeah, dampened the crowd a little bit. And then obviously the equaliser was just completely out of nothing as well. I mean, two brilliant hits. Although I did, I was gutted when I saw about the third replay of that Kerr goal. And I saw it got a bit of a deflection. Hmm. It always ruins like a great goal just a little bit, doesn't it? But uh, never mind. You think it took it a little bit away from Oops? I think it probably put a bit of dip on it. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Bit of a shame, but it was a great, I mean, that was probably the moment of the tournament certainly from an Australian perspective like the Mm. as I've said before the clamour for for Kerr to play has just been exceptional I thought she actually looked really sharp tonight from the outset didn't see any signs of of rustiness. Michael what did you think because there was some criticism that Millie Bright and Jess Carter didn't get out to Sam Kerr quick enough and I'm thinking play it left play it left to Caitlin Ford because she was in so much space but the likelihood of a player scoring from that distance I thought, you know, Brighton Carter couldn't have really done much else. Yeah, I haven't seen that criticism, but I'd agree with you completely, Charlotte. I thought the pass was on. I thought it was quite a bad shot to take on, which shows what I know. But yeah, I agree. You've got to, in that situation, they've got to be covering the run as well as closing the player down. And I don't think they would have, you know, they know her better than anyone. I don't think they would have expected her reasonably to shoot from there because I, 
I don't really think of that as being a big part of a game really if anything I would have expected her to try and knock it past them and try and you know use her pace to get in behind so yeah I agree I wouldn't wouldn't have any criticism of the defenders there so Ella Toon has become the first England player this is from Opta Joe on Twitter inclusive of men and women to score in a quarterfinal semi-final and final of major international tournaments that includes the Euros and World Cup uh, quarterfinal of course v Spain last year at the Euros the semi-final against Australia just in the World Cup and then the final last year at the Euros against Germany um, so before Sam Kerr's goal did really feel that England were mainly in control, weren't they, Michael? Um, and then Lauren Hemp, who has just been, as I speak, named player of the match, as we record, restored England's lead. You, you mentioned her earlier, maybe not being, maybe not at the fore of the Euros last year. Why has she clicked so much in this tournament? Because she just seems to have that sort of never-say-die attitude. She never gives up on a ball and she's so physical with it as well, but also obviously technically brilliant. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I've also been really impressed by her intelligence of movement, which I must say, sometimes when she's playing out wide, I often think she's a bit one-dimensional. She's kind of got a slightly... I mean, even when she beats players, she's kind of got a very straightforward, kind of linear dribbling style that sometimes goes awry. But just her... Yeah, the way she can come short, she can spin in behind. I think she's really selfless with how she tries to drag opponents around and create space for, for Russo. She's always been a... I think quite an efficient finisher as well but obviously the fact that she's playing centrally means she gets into those positions a lot more and we're seeing more end product from her but it's I mean I, I could be wrong I can't remember her playing that often through the middle for Manchester City I, I remember when when Serena Vigman played her there against the USA in November maybe I kind of looked at it on paper and thought I can't really imagine that going well but it looked really good then that was as part of a 4-3-3, so she was up front alone. But now with a, a strike partner, she looks even better. And it's, I mean, if you'd said five weeks ago that England are going to, you know, go into the knockout stage with Hemp and Russo as a front two, I think most people would be really surprised. But they've both scored in the quarterfinal and they've both scored in the semifinal. So it's, it's worked remarkably well. Yeah, so far, so good. Uh, as for Australia, they made some sort of attacking changes with... Emily van Egmond on for defender Claire Polkinghorne. And some of the changes they made did make it nervy, especially before that third goal, didn't they, Michael, uh, for England in normal time? Yeah, they did. And I think, um, was it a 2-1 where Kerr had a shot that was saved? Van Egmond nearly got on it with her first touch. Yeah, I, I think that was... I don't know if it was about the subs or whether it was just about kind of pressure but a combination of the two Australia really did have their chances there I don't think England did that much wrong I don't think England ever really panic I think that's maybe the defining quality even when under pressure they can do as Charlotte says the basics well and even when they've conceded a couple of chances you never suspect they're about to collapse they've got a very very solid back line so yeah I mean Australia had to change things had to go chasing the game and they did have chances but I do think England defend really well in those situations and then, yeah, the, the third goal, we've touched on it already, but it symbolises how well Lauren Hemp and Alicia Russo have clicked, haven't they? And, and Ella Toon as well, you know, chipping in. Are you, are you surprised, Charlotte and Mark, at what Michael was saying there, how well they performed as a duo? And surely against Spain, they both start, don't they, Charlotte? It's a no-brainer. Yeah, I think Hemp and Russo will definitely stay up top. I expect Wiegmann to keep the same formation. The big question is, Lauren James, where does she fit in? 
Just winding back, we have to give a shout out to the back three of Alex Greenwood, Jess Carter and Millie Bright. They were mm. phenomenal today. Jess Carter, you know, some crunching challenges. Millie Bright with those diagonal balls. Alex Greenwood knowing when to intercept and read the game. And as Michael said, the back three have been solid all tournament. But yeah, back to your question. Hemp has played that role at Bristol City before she joined Manchester City. But that's working really well, so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> this, this is your um, part, though. I mean, this is something we're going to talk about, I'm sure, in more detail, but it's a bit of a headache for Serena Vigman, isn't it? Lauren James, we know she is a huge talent, but yeah, OK, she got England through the group stages, but this is the team that got England to the final now. So do you agree with Charlotte? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there's still plenty of room for Lauren James to come off the bench and have a huge impact. I think so, yeah. I mean, that was certainly Wiegmann's plan in the, the Euros, wasn't it? Of just keeping the, the same consistent team and having the same consistent substitutes coming on. But we know that this has been a tournament far more to tinker, whether that is within game or, or between games, sometimes out of necessity for the reasons that we've we've already mentioned. But I think it would be rather harsh to, to take two now. And I know that in the, the pre-match um, interview that she said when asked sort of, why have you gone with the same team she said that we you know we perform well so I see no reason to change it so I think knowing her her attitude going into each game she probably will keep it the same but as you say what a player to, to bring on in in Lauren James after you know an hour or so and we know the individual quality that she has to get a goal create a chance out of out of nowhere she's got the technical quality to yeah to create something out of nothing so uh, I do think they'll they'll continue you know the same as they are and to go back to your, your question before in terms of Russo and uh, and Hemp I think that in the first couple of games especially I think Russo we mentioned it before did sort of cut a bit of an isolated figure and I think just having Hemp as just a bit more of, a, of an unpredictable player to sometimes come short, as, as Michael said, or sometimes drift into channels and allow uh, Russo to drift into channels as well. The sort of the interchange between the two of them just always keeps the opposition backline guessing, which I think is is massively key because sometimes Russo, when she's been a bit of a static figure in the middle, has kind of just been picked off a little bit. So, as much as anything, it just keeps it fresh and just keeps the opposition guessing. Big saves as well at either end in the first 10 minutes. Big moments from Mary Earps and Mackenzie Arnold, although that Mary Earps one eventually was was offside. Uh, Alex Greenwood got a yellow on 10 minutes as well. That was a bit of a worry, wasn't it, Michael, getting a yellow on, on 10 minutes? But was that the referee getting control of the game, saying we're not having any of that? Maybe. I thought that was quite a bad foul, actually. Mm. I know it's one of those where she's like, I've just got to take one for the team. But I think sometimes players go way OTT in those challenges. I don't think it was... I'm not saying it was red, but I think sometimes you've got to be really careful not to just not overdo it. Because when you're just sliding into someone's leg like that, it can look quite bad. But yeah, it was it was all right after that. I think Greenwood's really good. I think Greenwood arguably has been England's best player in this tournament, actually. So uh, yeah, aside from that, I think she was very solid again. I think with the fact that England knew that the, the yellow cards had been kind of wiped out from the, the previous... Uh, round, I think it was quite wise sometimes for England to just stop any potential counterattack for Australia and sort of nip it in the bud early doors because obviously everyone knows Australia's sort of counterattacking threat and there was a few occasions, yes, the, the challenge itself was a little bit tasty, probably a little bit more of a an orange even, you could say, in terms of the threat of it. But I think, I think England made nine first-half fouls and three of them were on Sam Kerr. So there was a couple of maybe... Not quite reducers, but sort of try and just test Kerr's metal a little bit. And actually, I think in the first half of their previous four games, that was more across 
the first half than the total of England's previous four games in terms of the fouls. So I think they were tactically trying to just nip nip any counter-attack in the bud for, for Australia, but also knowing that if they did get any cards, it was not sort of a, a carryover from the, the previous uh, stage. So quite quite wise overall from England in the way they approached it. So, Mike, we, we need to let you get to the press now. I just wondered, at the very start of this tournament, did you envisage England getting to the final, given how the group stage started and maybe that performance against Nigeria. I know it opened up with Germany going out, but is this what you thought would happen? Yeah, like you say, it's just opened out. And, and England always give themselves a chance because they don't concede many goals. And the goals that they do concede, the Columbia chip that just went over Earp's head um, from Santos and the goal tonight, not even goals they can really do anything about. So they basically keep clean sheets or keep it to one. And they, they do have a lot of players who can chip in in different situations. So, yeah, I think England are a very battle-ready, kind of intelligent and getting their way through tournament sides. They, they haven't really played great football at any point, aside from against China. I think we have to probably say that China were just a really poor side. But yeah, this is often how tournaments are won. You keep it tight at the back, you nick a goal from wherever you can, and you end up in the final. Well, you will be at the final, so we will speak to you on Sunday, Michael. Uh, go and enjoy the presser, and we'll touch base soon. Thanks. I'm just pleased I don't have to be at the third, fourth place playoff, to be honest. But yeah, looking forward to the final. And what's he, what he's not saying as well, he didn't have to fly to Brisbane, so we get to stay in Sydney now. So he's even happier. We will speak to Michael on Sunday, hopefully for England fans, with good news. OK, let's take a break and we'll be talking more about an incredible day at the Women's World Cup straight after this. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. So we've let Michael go off to speak to Serena Viegman in the presser. Mark and Charlotte are still with me. Well, let's head back to Stadium Australia and find out what the players have been saying. Post-match, Chloe Morgan was there. So many players wanted to talk uh, in the mix zone. Often you find that the players are so tired after the, uh, after the games, obviously, that they you know, give you a couple of one, one two-word answers and, and head off understandably. They're absolutely shattered. But today, so many players wanted to stop and talk about the achievement. Obviously, the first time they've reached uh, a final in their history, um, a World Cup final in their history. Uh, Lucy Bronze in particular, obviously, is sort of part of the senior leadership in the, in the squad. Was, um, you know, she stayed with us for a good 10 or, 10 or 11 minutes, really answering everybody's questions. And she was saying sort of, she joked initially that um, obviously with her Spanish uh, Barcelona teammates that um, all of them had said oh well we'll see you in the final and yet here we are in, a, in an England-Spain final which is quite funny but you know she spoke really highly of, um, of Jess Carter and she was saying you know as one of the young guns like they must just expect that this is what England do now but they haven't faced all the failures that the England team have had in, in previous tournaments so um, yeah she was full of um, jokes and things like that and she was saying in the um, in the huddle as well at the uh, at the end of the game that Serena Weegram was gathered them all round was 
was really like lovely and cheering, clapping and Lucy Bond just started jumping up and down with excitement and Serena said stop jumping immediately, you need to start preparing for the game. So yeah, she was really good, giving us a lot of um, a lot of funny stuff that, that all the, the sort of that resonated with the, the press pack and uh, also Alex Greenwood as well. Um, she normally stays for absolutely ages, but she was so emotional. Like she was, you could tell like her eyes were quite red. Like the whole what happened and you know the performance that she'd had as well. And throughout the competition, she's been one of England's strongest players. Yeah, you could tell that it, it really meant something to her. And I think she, actually she just wanted a moment you know, by herself to kind of reflect and kind of take it in with the team. And um, yeah, that really resonated with us as well. It was quite an emotional um, few minutes with her. So yeah, we got a lot out of the players today, and we really appreciated you know having that contact time with them especially at a moment where they just want to go and you know celebrate with their teammates family friends get back to the hotel have a shower and um, you know soak it all up of, of you know the, the momentous occasion and what they've achieved um, Mark I asked Michael if he thought England would reach the World Cup final I know people had opinions about the tournament opening out but now they're going to play Spain and Spain lost 4-0 to Japan yet have become one of the better sides of the tournament we know their possession football how are England going to even start to consider how they break them down because they did it last year in the Euros but different team this year yeah I was going to say they got previous from from last summer in in having a blueprint of maybe how to overcome Spain I think I mean England are are dominant possession wise as well just like Spain I think across the whole tournament I think Spain are second England are third across all the teams in terms of the the highest share of possession I think Germany are actually ever so slightly the highest of all the teams of course they're not in the tournament anymore but I think England would want to to dominate the ball, but if ever there was a time to almost allow Spain to have it and maybe have more of a counter-attacking threat, then we know from that Japan game that that is potentially Spain's Spain's weakness to almost soak up the pressure, maybe just have a bit more of a mid-block bunker in and then know that you can hit Spain potentially on the counter-attack and they have been quite susceptible to that at times. So I think to try and kind of out Spain Spain by trying to just sort of dominate the ball it, it might not necessarily be the best way to go about it so you've got to try and think of a way to to counteract the the strengths of the the opposition so without changing England's whole plan altogether I'd maybe argue more of a counter-attacking play and we know how strong they are in in wide areas and having the the wing backs push on Lucy Bronze so so strong in making those darting runs into the box and Probably saw it less with Rachel Daly uh, today, but she's you know how strong she is from an attacking perspective. I think maybe a counter-attacking plan could be the, the way to undo Spain. It'll be really interesting, the kind of fatigue mentality. Uh, when I spoke to Mary Earps for her, my game in my words, she just said how tiring it is to watch, not that you're watching, but to predict and transition with Spain's movement. It is exhausting when the other team have so much possession and you're trying to stay organised defensively, stay disciplined and you don't have the ball and you have to be so compact as a team. It'll be really interesting given Lucy Bronze and Kira Walsh have spent the last year at Barcelona. England won against them 2-1 in the Euros but that was a very, very tight game and of course Lauren James wasn't in that uh, Euros squad last year and she's quite a bit of an unknown quantity uh, for that Spanish team. We know that Chelsea played them in the Champions League semi-finals this year and James played a role in that, albeit uh, uh, more of an underwhelming performance. But Spain are going to be really tough to beat. I I just wondered, Mark, what it is like for 
some of the squad players now. So we're going to see all the pictures of the squad celebrating on the pitch. But there are some that are not going to get any minutes in this tournament. To go all the way to Australia, like Jordan Nobbs, Robinson, Roebuck, to name a few, they're not, Hannah Hampton, probably not going to get on the pitch now. That must be such a bizarre experience because you have played your part, but then not on the pitch. So how has Serena Viegman kept harmony all the way through this England camp? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one to answer just how well she has done it, but she certainly has done it, hasn't she? And I think it was very much the same with, with the Euros last summer and <laughs> far closer to home. It was it couldn't have been any closer to home in terms of it being on home soil, but there were so many players who who similarly didn't get on the pitch and they had a massive role to play as well. And we knew exactly who the substitutes were, who were going to come on because it was such a refined, wallowed machine. But I think it's often the case it comes out at the end of tournaments, to, you know, the, the manager and the staff say just how those players are absolutely crucial to making sure that there's positivity in the camp. They are the biggest supporters of those who sort of do play on the field. And and I think that that harmony is the, the thing that does pull you through into the, the finals of, of tournaments and, and to win major tournaments. And I think you could see as they, you know, as the, the final whistle blew, they were running onto the pitch just as much as the, the substitutes and the sort of emotional as, as the players who had just played. So, I don't know what the sort of the secret source is, but I think that Serena Wiegmann's been the one to to keep that that harmony and that positivity throughout, and it's clearly working. So yeah, um, speaking to Beth England at the media day in June, you know, it's it's the hard work, everything that goes into the tournament. It really is a squad feel, and what Serena Wiegmann does is she's very clear on who's starting, who's finishing, and who's your understudy. So it's not as if those players don't know their role. And they're being disappointed. They they know that they're not going to start every game. Lotta Weebenmoy probably knows she's not going to get many minutes unless a centre-back is injured. And yeah, it is tough to take. But what I'm hearing from the camp is that they're generally having a good time, <laughs> even if they're not playing football. It, the, the mood is relaxed around the camp. And it is, Wiegmann has created that unbelievable belief and collective of bringing people together and we kind of rib her for not talking about individuals but that's why she does it because no one player is bigger than this team they're always talking about high standards in training and you have to have those squad players to to maintain that level of performance but also it's the the different characters in the camp it's it's a long time that they've done eight well even more than that when did they join camp June 19th, they've been in camp together. Wow, so almost two months. So Almost two months. Y- you have to keep it fresh. And, and those squad players, everybody brings their personality. And Serena Wiegmann and her team have obviously allowed them to be themselves. Mm. Charlotte, you're going to go and write a piece on this as well about the game. You can read it if you subscribe to The Athletic. What's, sort of, what's on your mind? What are you about to put pen to paper? Or well, no one puts pen to paper anymore. <laughs> type to typewriter. Let's go back to the 1900s. Uh, but what, what are you going to write about as you hastily have steam coming off your laptop in a few minutes? It's the big dilemma, I think, that Serena Wiegmann faces is, you know, what do you do with Lauren James? She returns from her two-match ban for the final. And just how what we know about Serena, how she's like to really, to approach that decision. Um, Toon was out of form and hasn't hit the levels that one expected of a number 10 role. Lauren James lit the world alight. But yeah, do you start Toon? Do you start James? Do you bring James on as a sub? How is that going to work? So any thoughts? Let us know on the pod. 
Is there not an argument, though, here that Lauren James, and I, you know, I think it's right that she wasn't piled on. I think it was a moment of madness. It's done now. Everyone's moved on. But is there not an argument that she did that? And yes, she's had a punishment with this two-game ban. But this is the side that have really pulled out the bag. And Ella Toon, okay, she wasn't informed, but she's just scored a goal that's contributed to her team getting to the World Cup final for the first time, Mark. So if I'm Ella Toon, well, I'm thinking, well, I have to start. And if Lauren James comes in, what does that do for the dressing room? They know she's a massive talent. But does it not, you know, that harmony we just talked about, could that not be in jeopardy ever so slightly? Yeah, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say it absolutely sets the tone by... <laughs> sets the tune sets the tone to uh, <laughs> to to keep that consistency and to know that there's there's an element of meritocracy you might say just in terms of the yeah the the discipline that the tune has shown and I, I do agree i don't think she's been in the the best form throughout all of this tournament and i was speaking about it with someone during the game and we said you know she's been quite quiet in this game and we both said well i bet she'll score now and then about 2 minutes later she went and scored it was sort of more of a you know, a moment rather than her necessarily finding a bit of form within the game. But no, I completely agree. It's keeping that sort of consistency, making sure that it's fair for everyone because to the points that we made before, Serena Wiegmann has been very clear in her communication. And I think to then suddenly sort of change and then say, nope, James is back in after mm. what was a, a controversial sort of event, then it would maybe undermine that in the biggest game of, of England's, you know, recent history. So I, despite all of that, I think from a purely football perspective, I think that James is is in better form. She's the, the better player. And if you were choosing your, your best 11, I do think she'll be in it. But for the context that everything we just said, I do think that, that Toon could and should be the one to start. And then, as we mentioned before, bring James on after an hour. She'll potentially completely impact the game. There's still plenty of time to do it. We saw Sam Kerr had that for different reasons with her injuries throughout the knockout stages. So... There's still plenty of plenty of drama to unfold in the in the final. I think we know that Wiegmann manages according to her football decisions. What's best for the team? And if England have a specific tactical plan that brings out the best in Lauren James, then she may go with that and she'll explain her reasons very clearly to the team of I'm bringing in James for this reason, for this tactical aspect. So I don't think she'll get too hung up on the kind of emotions. It will be very much clean slate, but she has to make an informed decision. Obviously, she'll check in with Lauren James. How is she feeling? It's a World Cup final. So we'll see. It's fun, though. <laughs> yeah, it's fun that England are in a World Cup final for England fans, for sure. What is this doing for the game, Charlotte? Because I'd like to think we're all a similar age. I'm not going to guess your ages, but, you know, we all know that a Women's World Cup final was incredibly hard to access when we were a few years old. I mean, the first one didn't start until 1995, for crying out loud. And now you've got a whole world, and it does feel like the whole world is watching this event unfold. I felt like the whole of Australia invested in their country. Not, let's be honest, not really a football nation, but completely behind their team, you know, packed out stadium in, in Sydney. And then back home in England, we saw what the Lionesses winning the Euros did. We can see it with little girls taking up football more now more than ever before. It's not weird to play football anymore. You're not an outcast if you like football and you're a girl. What is this going to do for the game, Charlotte, England getting to their first ever World Cup final? I'm not talking about the players on the pitch. You know, We know 
they're and, and the coaching staff they're doing an amazing job but what is it going to mean for the future of the game here and how do we capitalize on it i think the most difficult thing of an athlete or anyone at the top of the game is staying at the top and it's kind of the same with women's football in england and that we're reinforcing that euros win from last year and strengthening it even further. So all the good foundations that have been put in place in this year are only going to be strengthened. And it's only like, well, why would you invest in women's football? Well, just look. You know, it's not just happening one year. It's happening the next year. It's another evidence because you always feel like you have to prove yourself when somebody says why. And you're like, well, here's why. If, if you're not If you're not getting it now, I mean, wake up to the world <laughs> because... Australia, who are not a footballing nation, have been completely enraptured by this tournament and we're still feeling it in England. So don't get me wrong, there's still work to be done. There's still the basics in the WSL. We had a frozen pitch in January last year and a game abandoned. So the the discrepancy between the elite level World Cup final domestic game, but it just, it reinforces, well, you know, why do we need basic infrastructure? Why do we need facilities? Why do we need maternity cover and pensions and injuries? And this is why. So these athletes can perform their best at the highest level, but not only these athletes, but young girls who actually are getting amazing participation rates. Well, brilliant. So when they come into the league, let's make it as professional as possible for them. I think you've touched on something there, Charlotte, as well. It's almost like we're waking up more and more to it now, Mark. You know, we, we know how great the women's game is, but the fact, you know, quite clearly women's and men's bodies are different, things like that. It feels like the bigger this gets, the more investment there's going to be. You know, we've only just got our first pair of women's football boots, for example. We're looking closer into why female athletes get ACL injuries far more prevalently than male athletes. We're looking into things like period and the menstrual cycle. So even though England's, could potentially win their first World Cup on Sunday and it would be amazing and I know it would be incredibly emotional for England fans. It goes almost way deeper than that, doesn't it? Do, do you know what I mean? Because if, if England, the men's team, win the World Cup, it would be incredible, but the infrastructure is there and it's almost an expectation that one day that should happen. But with the women, it feels like, Charlotte said, these standards are starting to be set now and it's going to transcend almost through down to grassroots, you would hope. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's staggering that we are in 2023. And as you say, the the research and all of the, the barriers that are slowly being removed, uh, we're sort of at this stage, it feels like we should be so much further forward. I mean, so in my, my previous job, this sort of resonates because in my previous job, I worked a lot with the FA on projects um, to do with uh, girls in football. It was called Game of Our Own. It was an FA funded sort of project. And I'd go out to schools and we'd speak with a lot of the students and ask them sort of what their biggest barriers were to playing football. And more often than not, it wasn't to do with football or the interest in football per se. It was everything around it, like feeling embarrassed that other people were sort of watching them and, and not feeling like there's many kind of role models to, to have that. And, and as you say, it it transcends the the sport itself. It's everything around it about what it means to, to be a sports sportswoman in general, never mind playing football. And and knowing that there's more of your friends who are playing it and then you're more inclined to play it. And then all of the psychological factors that come with that of, of building resilience, building hard work and determination and all of the soft skills that, 
you know, not every girl or boy who plays football is going to go on to, to be in the professional game, but all of the skills that they will learn from it, all of the support that goes around it, hopefully is being starting to be matched at the um, at the female level, just like the, the male level. And as I say, I've seen it in, in schools sort of three years ago now. Um, so I saw it sort of pre-Euros and I can't imagine what it's going to be like from from this summer onwards and hopefully in the, the coming years right down to the grassroots level. So fingers crossed that that continues and this isn't just uh, <laughs> just sort of short term because I think it really should. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember when I was growing up, the closest you can get to any sort of coverage of women's football was subscribed to She Kicks, which I think was quarterly <laughs> and came every few months. And I remember Katie Chapman being on, on the cover, maybe in a Fulham shirt. And that was about it. That was our lot. So it's fantastic how far we have come, but there's still a long way to go. Look, we're going to look ahead to the final in more depth um, on Saturday. But in the here and now and the raw emotion of what we've just seen today and yesterday, what do you reckon, Charlotte? I, I don't want to ask you who's going to win because I feel like anything now is going to jinx it for England fans or Spain fans likewise. But go on then. What What is your logical head telling you? What's your gut telling you? My gut saying England. Um... They've just found a way to win. They have a manager who has gelled them and there is this unwavering belief that I saw in the Euros last year that has just has a kind of superpower double strength. Spain are to be feared. They've got some brilliant players, electric, but I just feel England have that cohesiveness that is hard to um, hard to unravel. Will they be hard to unravel, Mark? How do you see it? What's your what's your head and heart saying? Yeah, I I obviously want to echo what what Charlotte says, and I, and I do really. I think it's it's always so so hard to predict. I think it will be tight for long periods. Finals often are because I think it's it's far more risk averse because it's more of a must not lose as much as wanting obviously to win. You don't want to make any mistakes, but I think what I mentioned before is that there's a blueprint on how to beat Spain. And we've seen it within this tournament, you know, in the previous tournament, obviously England beat them as well. I don't think there's necessarily a blueprint on how to beat England because they seem to sort of always come up with the answers when they've had setbacks, be it ascending off or going behind as they, they have done, you know, in the previous uh, tie, they, they seem to always kind of have an answer. So England can definitely feel confident that teams might not know how to work them out. Whereas with Spain, I think that there is potentially a, a way to work them out. So I'm sure that's what, what England will be working towards ahead of the final. Oh, it's so exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast wherever you're listening now so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you to my guests, Charlotte Harper, Mark Kerry, Michael Cox and Chloe Morgan. I'm Michelle Owen and we'll be back with you when Australia take on Sweden in the third place playoff on Saturday. And of course, we'll look ahead in more detail to England against Spain in the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup final. We'll see you then for the last two episodes. The Athletic.